Hello and welcome to Nudge with me, your host, Phil Agnew. How often do you use behavioural science in your job? Is it something you bring up regularly? Is it something you debate and work on with your team? Or is it something you wished you used more? For too much of my career, it was the latter. I spent lots of my free time learning about behaviour science, but I couldn't apply it in my day job. I'm not 100% sure why this is. It might have been because my team didn't have the same interest in behaviour science as me, or perhaps I just wasn't confident enough to test it out or too worried that I would fail. Speaking with others, I hear this come up time and time again. So many of us love learning about the biases that dictate our decisions, but all too many of us struggle to apply behaviour science in our jobs. To help, I chatted with Melina Palmer, founder and CEO of the Brainy Business Podcast and all-round behaviour science expert. Melina has helped dozens of companies apply behaviour science. Her podcast, Brainy Business, talks through how major companies leverage nudges and her brand new book, What Your Customer Wants and Can't Tell You, is a real treasure trove of insight on how to apply behaviour science. In this episode, Melina will share her top tips for using behaviour science in your business and I'll share my failures and successes from using nudges in my day job. To kick off, I asked Melina how she starts applying behaviour science when she's working with a business. The podcast I'd like to recommend today is the D2C pod, brought to you by the HubSpot Podcast Network, the audio destination for business professionals. The D2C pod is a podcast all about all the things direct-to-consumer. The hosts cover everything from starting, growing and optimising e-commerce stores and D2C brands. If you're interested in the stories behind your favourite consumer brands, this is a podcast for you. To start, I'd suggest checking out episode 318, which features the CMO of Feastables. So listen to D2C pod wherever you get your podcasts. Finding a service solution that helps you better connect with customers and keep them happy can feel impossible. It's like trying to remember the name of someone you've just met at a networking event. I've made this mistake before, introducing a colleague to my new friend Dan, only to find out his name was actually Ian. Being personal with your customers is important, but keeping on top of all that information can be very hard. That's where HubSpot's all-new service hub comes in. It brings service and success together on one powerful platform for the first time ever. It's got an AI-powered help desk and an AI-powered chatbot that handles frontline tickets fast. Plus, it comes with a customer success workspace that helps reps anticipate customer needs. Plus, it never forgets a first name. All of that can help you scale support and drive retention and revenue. That means better service and happier customers at every stage of the journey. Visit hubspot.com service to do more for your customers today. Well, I think it's important to understand first the, I guess, gravitas of the brain and how it actually works, where it would be nice to be able to say, here's this one concept, it works every single time, go do it. But nothing really is that simple. Uh, However, when you have a handle on how the brain works and some of the things that can be coming together and what it means to be communicating with that subconscious, you know, then you have the opportunity to start putting together some tests. We start with framing because it's 
something that anybody could just start, you know, just change up your language a little bit and start doing a tiny test of, you know, instead of talking about the, you know, meat being 10% fat, you talk about it being 90% fat free and you see what happens. Or instead of, um, saying that you have 78% of customers buy again, that you say four out of five people buy again, and just see if it's more uh, influential to the people that you're talking to. You can really do that very easily and you can spot it in different ads or communication and think, you know, how might, what if I said that differently? What would that have, how would that have hit my brain in a different way? So funnily enough, priming was one of the first things I tried when I joined Hotjar, the company where I do my day job. I joined them back in January. And when I started, my team was tasked with improving the website's conversion rate. And we really had free will to test out whatever we wanted. I could have tested a number of different biases and nudges, but I wanted to start simple. So we focused on framing. We decided to improve the product page on the website. Now, this is the page that explains what Hotjar does. Previously, the product page on Hotjar's website was very technical. It highlighted the specialized benefits that Hotjar, the product, offered and, and got into real technical language about how it worked. We decided to change the framing, moving away from technical descriptions and instead focused on the user benefits. So previously, the copy would state something like heat maps aggregate mouse movement on your site. Really technical stuff. So we changed that to discover what part of your site attracts attention, more benefit led. We changed a bit of copy which said heat maps split by device types. And we changed that to compare engagement on mobile versus desktop. So simpler language, but also just highlighting benefits. And this reframing, it really worked. The A-B test revealed that the new copy grew conversions by 2.32%, a really significant improvement for a page that's viewed by thousands of people each day. So simply reframing your message to focus on benefits over technical descriptions can have a real effect. You know, if you do a little test of uh, something and are able to track the success and show that it worked and say, I learned about it, you know, in this book or wherever else. And I want to try to do this more and get us additional results. You know, that, that could be a good tactic to try as well. I think this is a crucial point. Running a test to prove that applying behavior science can work is a necessary step in helping you get up and running. These tests don't need to be complex at all. At Hotjar, all our tests are, are really fairly simple A-B tests. We put both versions live on the site and wait until one version has statistically relevant results. For pages with lots of traffic, this takes no more than a couple of days. And once you've seen success, you can start to roll out behavior science principles to other parts of the business, like this example from Melina's book. You know, someone in India that reached out about uh, something they had done with their sales team. And it's, I mean, it's a type of thing you've heard, I think, before, but uh, being able to say they've done before that you get the, you know, if you meet your quota, you'll get a bonus, just like what everybody does. But at this, they decided to have an event and they did the, like, handed out the big checks. And I think it was something like 30% of people 
met their goals when it was done in the traditional way. And they instead then tried it this particular one. They gave them a big check by saying, you know, we've put the money, you have your bonus now. And if you hit your goals, you get to keep it, you know, triggering that loss aversion. And it was over 70% then hit their goals when presented in that way. So uh, just a, a slight uh, shift that made a, a difference. I also really love, and I did talk about it on my podcast a little bit after that because I couldn't help myself, but um, Aline Holsworth and the team at Pattern Health, where they've been using like a Tamagotchi little animated character to help people stick to their uh, diet health uh, goals, like to take your medicine and thing. And you have a little turtle who they have named Virgil. And so Virgil, the turtle, you know, celebrates with you or like hides in his shell when you're going to miss a goal. (laughs) And so talking about, you know, how Virgil is impactful of this, you know, little image, but people are willing to go above and beyond and take their medicine so that Virgil doesn't get sad, even though it's a non-existent entity, but it just feels different to you. So I think little things like that are pretty fun to be able to see work instead of just, oh yeah, that's a cool thing, but actually put in and helping people to live a healthier life because you decided to put a face on a little character in an app. What's interesting about those examples is they both combine multiple different types of behavioral science principles. I think most applications of behavioral science in business require this approach. It's rarely possible to just test out anchoring or just test out social proof. Typically, you'll probably need to combine a range of ideas to get the mix right. But how do you combine nudges? Well, Melina has a unique approach to help. She calls it behavioral baking. Really, it's this idea of if you were to say you wanted to become a master baker, you know, you're going to go be on the Great British Bake Off or whatever that is. And you, but you have no skills right now. You don't actually know how to bake anything. You know, really the first thing that you need to do is understand the ingredients, you know, eggs, butter, flour, sugar, you can combine them together in many different ways. And you could be making a cake or cookies or macarons or pizza dough, right? Like you could be making all sorts of things. And if you just jump in and try throwing stuff in a bowl and don't know what you're going to make, it's going to be a disgusting mess. And so you should know, you know, what does, what's creating some leavening, what's binding things together, whatever. So understanding those ingredients is first, and then you probably are still going to start with a box cake mix or whatever that is to uh, get your feet wet a little bit. And then after doing that a couple of times, you know, maybe you experiment and decide to use some different spices or additional ingredients or try something from scratch that you're going to go make yourself and come up with these new recipes And they'll, you know, you might have some misses along the way that don't totally work out as you're perfecting those recipes to be able to really say that you are this master baker. So understanding and applying behavioral economics is very much the same way. And so the ingredients, your eggs, butter, sugar, are the concepts. You want to know what they do, how they work, 
what's going on in the brain, have that idea, and then have a bit of a recipe to follow. Then as you start to put them together and have an idea of what you're going to make, you can really follow a recipe as you go. And then you could try again and experiment and say, well, this didn't include anchoring, but I want to try it and see what will happen. That's like your cinnamon. You're going to sprinkle on those cupcakes or whatever it is. And you can see if it works or if not. And you just, again, going in and thinking, I'm going to go from zero to Nobel laureate work. Maybe (laughs) it's going to be setting up to fail a little bit, Uh, but picking some of those small things to start with. After getting success with our first experiment at Hotjar, we had the confidence to start mixing nudges. So I took one of our most visited landing pages and applied a range of different nudges to try and improve it. I reduced the cognitive load by adding a five-point list rather than lengthy paragraphs. I added social proof, stating that 900,000 organisations use the Hotjar product. And I tried to anchor expectations by stating that it only takes a few seconds to set up. On their own, these nudges might not have had a big effect, but together they really worked, lifting sign-ups on the page by a whopping 23%. But what if you lead a team? What if you don't implement nudges yourself? What if you're on a strategic rather than a tactical side? You might be looking to hire individuals to do this rather than to apply it yourself. So here's Melina giving some advice about who to look for when you're hiring behavior science practitioners. I think that uh, it's important to look for people who are natural questioners and also that are ready to tackle the uphill battle that may exist in defending something that's very new to everyone else in the company. So someone that can come in and when the CEO or whatever says, well, we've always done it this other way that will stand ground and say, you know, totally appreciate it. And we're doing this in a new way intentionally and how can I help us get there, right? But that can have a a good balance of internal communication skills as well as the knowledge of where you're going. There's a a lot in that outward long-term strategy as well as a good knowledge of the science that is not going to lie. It's hard. (laughs) There's a lot of a a unicorn search, I think, going on for some of these and being able to have good interpersonal relationships, plus that scientific knowledge and a desire to learn and grow with the team and can see where you're going and staying on track there. Anyone who is in a role like this has a tall order Another thing Melina is certain about is that applying nudges doesn't always have to require a big budget. If you don't have the money to hire a team, that's really not a problem. You can start small. Here's an example from Melina's book where a cost-free change had a major impact on sales. You know, I had a small business that's featured in the, I think it's in the Truth About Pricing, where we're talking about, um, she's, she owns a jewelry store uh, and piercing And just in reframing the way that she presented information was able to more than double the average ticket price of what people buy. 
and she didn't do any big ad buys or, or anything like that. It was just implementing the things that we spoke about and talking about her products a little bit differently and the services that she provided. And so there are a lot of things that you can be doing. And even just to be looking at, you know, if you have to start, if you are internal, um, you can be testing in your own emails and see what works. And your first project, instead of, you know, working on creating the whole big, you know, I'm going to change the, the entire company is now going to be behavioral science focused. If instead you're saying, you know, I just, I'm going to try to get one project and look at that as your big sales pitch, you know, the thing that you're going to be working on and look at this as a, a longer term process. And what can you do in your emails to help prime and nudge the influencers that make that decision? What can you do in using relativity and anchoring when you're asking for budget or to be on a team and doing just the little bits in the kind of sphere of influence that you do have available to see what, what you can do? Because again, the same tactics work on internal communication in exactly the same way, uh, really, that they do in selling for customers to buy products. There's a catch, though. Getting reliable results from these small ideas still involves reliable testing. You can't be sure if an idea has worked unless you're able to set up a test and analyse the results. I'd argue that this, testing, is actually the biggest barrier we all face. It's what halted me in my tracks for so many years and stopped me from trying to apply behaviour science. It wasn't until I was at a place where I was comfortable running tests, comfortable analysing results and comfortable sharing those results with my team that I felt really happy to apply behaviour science. Now, unfortunately, we are coming towards the end of our discussion with Melina. But before she left, I wanted to ask her if there was anything else that we should all be aware of before we apply behavior science in our work. And she highlighted one final problem that many first timers struggle with. The biggest problem where most companies go wrong, people when they're trying to apply behavioral science into their business, the error is made at the very, very beginning and it puts everything off. And that is really understanding the problem. What are you doing? Why are you here? And what's the point? And so it's really easy to find the right answer to the wrong question. And often the thing that first comes to mind when you, whether it's when you're assigned the project, the way it is listed or written out for you, or even just what you think you need to be solving is just not correct. It's just, it's not the true problem. And there's something deeper or adjacent that is actually what's going on. So spending enough time to really identify what the true problem is, is so critical when you then scope out what concepts you want to be using as you go to shape those tests, which could just be as simple as an A-B test. And so for an example of that, I talked about Shapa uh, and Dan Ariely uh, co-created a scale uh, for tracking your weight, uh, but it's a scale with no numbers. And anybody who 
works in scales <laughs> would think it's totally ridiculous to say that you could have a scale where people that people lose weight when they don't know their weight. You know, it feels like you have to have that tracking and they would just never have thought or been willing to test a scale that didn't have numbers on it. But really, it's very demotivating. There are many of us who like, you know, you overindulge on Saturday night and go, mm, I don't feel like I want to step on that today. And when you're tracking weight, you know, something you did 10 days ago has an impact on your weight today. Individual weight fluctuates two to eight pounds per day for everybody, which is significant. And even if I ate nothing but salad and went for a run yesterday, um, you know, I might be up three pounds today, which is depressing and you don't feel good about yourself. And then you go eat some cookies or whatever. And so being able to have something that's tracking trends and showing you how you're doing with color actually is much more valuable and has been proven to keep people, you know, staying the same and losing just a little bit throughout the year instead of continually increasing just a little bit. But that is a result of asking a different question, thinking about the problem in a different way. It's not how do we make a better scale, but like, how do we make people healthier? Do you need to know your weight to lose weight? What's, what's the real goal? And then you can create those interventions and things to be testing. But if you would have just looked at it in that myopic boxed view that everyone else in the industry would have had, you never would have gotten to something that actually solves the real true problem for people. All right, folks, that is all we have time for today. I do hope you've enjoyed this episode with Melina Palmer. We've covered tips for starting to apply behavior science, why an A-B test is really your best friend when you get started, and why you don't always need a big budget to get your ideas off the ground. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode with Melina, you'll no doubt enjoy reading her book. So as a little gift for Nudge listeners, Melina has made the first chapter of her book available for free. So to give it a read, head to thebrainybusiness.com, all one word, thebrainybusiness.com forward slash nudge. And there you can download that first chapter for free. And if you like it, you can then go and check out the book. If you want to do that, the link to buy the book is in the show notes. And there's a link to Melina's podcast as well. It's all in the show notes. So go do check that out if you are interested. Okay, that is everything for this week. As always, do feel free to get in touch with me. You can email me. I'm phil, phil with two L's, at nudgepodcast.com. Um, or you can find me on Twitter. I'm at P underscore Agnew, A-G-N-E-W on there. Now, I will be back in two weeks for another episode of Nudge. But for today, thank you so much for listening. Thank you.